for another episode, a very, very special episode uh, that will hopefully take you through Thanksgiving weekend and all of your travels and, and what have you. Um, I was about to say that I have two guests joining me on, on the pod, but one of the people got mad at me uh, last time I introduced him as a guest because this is because <laughs> this is his podcast. So I'll just say one of the people on the podcast is JB, Nick's Film School himself. How are you, JB? Good, good, good. <laughs> and uh, and the second person, uh, I am, you know, I feel like I've been saying this a lot, but it, it goes without saying here, I am honored to have joined both of us today. Uh, he is someone that I think, you know, Knicks fans have been craving as far as someone that covers the team fairly um, and, you know, just kind of gives the fans what they need to know. Um, and I think people really respect that. And that is, of course, ESPN's Ian Bagley. Ian, how are you, man? I appreciate the warm welcome, guys. Um, like you, looking forward to uh, a nice Thanksgiving meal tomorrow night, and we'll see what happens in Boston tonight with these Knicks. Yeah, we uh, we certainly will. Uh, although, with the way things have been trending, I could certainly take a guess. Um before we before we get to the team, uh, I so I was thinking about it, and I, it, on one hand, it feels like kind of just yesterday that you joined the Knicks beat with ESPN, but I was looking at it today, and I I think you're the second longest tenured guy um, after Berman. Is that right at this point? Man, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, I think with Isola gone. Um... I don't count yeah. Popper because he Popper quit for a little bit and now he's back, so he's in his own. Category. Yeah, Pop, yeah, Popper. I think we start the clock again. Uh, <laughs> Alan Hans' role changed, so he's around the team every day, but he's not. He doesn't view them through the lens of a beat writer. So yeah, wow. That's what, uh, uh, at, that's on one hand, uh, uh, it's a nice thing to think about. On the other hand, it's quite depressing. Yeah, so I, I'm curious. <laughs> like you know, it's been eight years now, even with right since 2010. Um, yeah, what's what's that change been like? Because you know, I, I feel like that you know the team is obviously you know it was bad when you started, and they're they're not terribly great now. But you know, we kind of get the sense sometimes that things are are easing up around the garden. Um, you know, is that accurate? Like, how do you find it? Well, I would say just in a in a general sense, you know, going back to 2010, it just feels like it had been such a revolving door when it comes to coaches and executives and by extension uh, players on the roster, uh, when you, when you trace back to that time and even prior to then, um, and it felt like for all of that time that the, the one thing that was missing was, you know, an alignment top to bottom, um, ownership, management, coaching, uh, that kind of alignment that you see with the best NBA organizations, you know, the Spurs, the Warriors, teams like that, they have that that uh, triumvirate, that ownership, uh, management, and coaching staff kind of in lockstep, and that hadn't been the case in New York. And, you know, it feels like it's very early with this new group, um, Steve Mills, Scott Perry, David Fisdale, 
James Dole is still the owner. He's been the owner. He will be the owner for the foreseeable future. It's very early for this group, uh, but based on what you see uh, so far from them, at least publicly, is that they appear to be all on the same page, rowing in the same direction with what they want to do with this team and where they want this team uh, to grow and how they want to grow it. So that seems to be different to me than years past uh, in New York. Right. And I guess picking up off of that on a topic that that me and you, Ian, talked a little bit about on Twitter, and I'm not going to get into uh, you know, what we were talking about in terms of maybe how this story was covered, because I think that's, that's kind of in the past now. I think it's more a question, an underlying question that I think is there that we all realize and you know, I, I'm not sure anyone yet on the beat has a full answer, quite honestly, but that's what I'm interested in learning from your perspective is with Kristaps Porzingis' injury and the way the Knicks have sort of, you know, been reluctant to to say anything that would suggest he's having any great progress. Obviously, KP wants to, you know, say he's working hard and, and doing what he's doing. Do you get a sense, even if it's not something necessarily that, you know, you know for sure yet, but do you get a sense that as well as everything's going, everyone's kind of rowing in the right dire- in the same direction, that there is some sort of underlying tension there just in, in the sense of his timeline coming back more than maybe even the relationship between the, the two sides? Well, in regards to the possibility of him coming back, I, I have – I just think, and this is just a guess, and I read on the situation, um, is that he ultimately won't come back. And I think when we talk about the potential for uh, disagreement between Porzingis and the Knicks there, I think that could come when and if Porzingis feels that he's healthy enough to get back on the court and the Knicks maybe push back on that because they're either being conservative or they don't feel that there's a need for him to, to get back at that point in the season, I think that's where you're going to see uh, a potential for a disagreement between the two parties about this particular issue um, in, in a bigger picture sense. You know, I, when Scott Perry talked to the media after uh, stretching and waving Joakim Noah and after declining to uh, extend Kristaps Porzingis' rookie contract, he basically said that, you know, Kristaps... And his peep and his side really want to see us, the, the organization, in a place where we're creating a, a winning environment. And he said we want the same thing, so we're on the same page there. But you know, inherent in that statement to me was the idea that you know, uh, from Porzingis' perspective, you know, it's kind of a wait and see thing. He wants to see how things develop this season, and he wants to see, I think, what happens this summer um, before making that decision to make a full commitment to New York uh, when they do offer him the extension this summer. So, I, you know, I think that it, everything is kind of in wait-and-see mode now from Chris Stapps Porzingis' perspective. That's my read on the situation. That's not me making right. a statement for him yeah. or for the Knicks. That's just right. kind of how I see it. And, I mean, so do you think in, in saying that, I mean, in terms of, you know, do, like you said, you're taking your read on whether he comes back or not. And, you know, if, if there's a potential disagreement over the timing, I mean, do you think it's about, you know, a lot of teams, I haven't seen it with the Knicks, but a lot of teams have a lot more information data wise and health science, or I think is what they're calling it. Um, obviously, KP has a unique 
you know, he's seven foot three and his injury is probably hard to compare to most athletes who aren't built like him. Do you think the reluctance on the Knicks side would be more from just a health standpoint, just saying we're just not sure uh, if he comes back, that's just the best option from, from that standpoint? Or do you think it's more about, you know, something bigger in terms of this season and not wanting to rush him back to a team that's, you know, clearly not looking, you know, to win. They're not in a position like they're trying to chase a playoff spot and they need him to come help them get them over the top. Right. It would be hard for me to guess at that. Uh, I would imagine that both factors would come into play when it came time to make that decision. Um, but it, it, if you talk to, if you talk about the idea that, that we get to a point where he thinks he's ready and they don't think he's ready again to what you mentioned earlier. I just wonder how that could impact uh, the dynamic between Porzingis and the team. And JB, you know, you brought it up. I thought we had an interesting kind of back and forth um, on Twitter. And I would, I would, it would be fine if you guys want to waste a couple minutes on the podcast just talking about it because I thought it was fascinating. We were talking <laughs> about what led Porzingis to be upset and to go to Instagram to post that pictures of him sprinting. I thought it was Fisdale saying he didn't, he wasn't making a great deal of progress and he wasn't sprinting when in fact he was sprinting. I thought that was his motivation, but you felt differently. Yeah. So, I mean, I, well, especially now, I guess we have the gift of time of, um, I think, you know, you know more than me in terms of you react to a story that happens in time. You want to be timely and getting something out you got to kind of make a pretty quick call on what you're seeing, right? So, um, you know, I think that definitely Porzingis did not agree with the assessment that Fisdale gave about his progress because clearly, you know, he is sprinting, not jogging or however uh, Fisdale characterized it. But I just thought that at the time the way – and, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't the fault really so much of an individual, you know, headline writer or beat writer. It's just kind of the way things, you know, work out in our social media culture is that the, the quote, you know, Fizdale's giving a full quote, right? And, and he's talking about Porzingis is working his ass off and, you know, he's going through all these things. And then he was asked about the sprinting and he said no. I just thought, though, the way that the quote was presented, I don't know if KP, I don't know if it gets on his radar the same if he's not seeing coming across his social media feed, coming across maybe a friend even texting him something that says he's not even running, which almost suggests, you know, maybe he's not even, you know, jogging anything. He's just kind of walking. That's what I, that's why I thought it got his attention more so than, you know, it's not to say I think he wasn't upset that there was a difference in what he saw as his progress versus Fizdale. But I definitely do think how quickly many places, you know, Deadspin, I think we talked about, picked up on that little part of the quote, I think got his attention a little quicker than, you know, it, it would have otherwise. I'm going to do this, and I don't know if I'm going to get an answer. I'm going to try to get an answer when we see – KP next. I don't think I'll get a full answer, but I'm going to try to try to settle our debate because I don't think I think that with Chris, he knows what's going to happen when he puts that Instagram out. He's well aware. He knows the market. He knows how this whole dynamic works. So I don't think he's making a decision like that without 
knowing fully what the coach said. But I'm going to I'm gonna try to settle it for us, and, and if I can get an answer, I will let you know. Uh, yeah. you know but one thing I will just say is I think like you had reported – the, the biggest reason he was reacting was the perception it seemed the quote the quote made. So I guess to me, maybe the clarification is, was he trying to set the record straight by by saying what Fizdale said was wrong, or was he trying to make sure the perception wasn't making it seem like he wasn't working hard? And I thought that it sounds like a strange nuance, but I think that's why I was kind of going more on well, yeah, the perception is going to be that way if all the headlines are very, you know, highlighting the part that he's not making really any progress. He can't even run. But, um, but yeah, that that's, like I said, it's kind of a strange nuance, but that's how I sort of read it. But, yeah, if you, <laughs> obviously, if you get to talk to him, he'll, he'll tell us all what, you know, what he was thinking better than all of us guessing. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's an interesting conversation about kind of almost the way media works and what what is reporting, what is opining, um, and, you know, how big of a gray area is there between those two things. What I found most interesting about the story is just the fact that after the whole kind of, it, it I want to say, blew up a little bit, Fisdale came out and he basically, you know, as best as he could, put it to bed by said, yeah, I screwed up. Um, it, it, uh, it's not something I should have said. I was wrong. Um, and, and kind of went from there. Whereas I think in years past, um, and I don't, I don't want to really want to speak for other coaches who have been here or front office executives or anything, but I felt like that story could have had more legs, um, than it even did. And, and it had some legs, but not as bad. And that actually gets into the next thing I wanted to ask you, Ian, which is, you know, I think as fans, um, we sit here and we read coaches' quotes and players' quotes and try to play arm, armchair psychologist about, you know, what's the vibe in the team? Are guys upbeat? Are guys already down? Are guys already waiting until, uh, you know, they could start making their tea times in, in April? Um, just, you know, you could report quotes, but, you know, do you get a sense of kind of what the vibe is on the team, you know, amongst the, guys, the actual guys on the roster? Well, it, it's interesting, you know, you talk about the experience of a reporter and kind of how we uh, gather our information. Uh, we're not around these guys uh, a large portion of their day or a large portion of the season. You know, we see the games, we attend practices, we don't see a lot in practice. We talk to the coach for about eight minutes, ten minutes after practice. We talk to a couple players for about five minutes after practice. Games we talk, maybe talk to one or two guys in the locker room before the game, after the game, we're talking to three or four guys for four or five minutes at a time. So it's hard to kind of get a, an accurate sense of where a team stands at any particular moment. And it's, I think a lot of people in the business, even people who aren't in the locker room that much try to make those snap judgments. And I think a lot of times they're off. Um, but I think, by and large, uh, with this group, uh, maybe with the exception for the last couple of weeks of Ennis Cantor, at least publicly, these guys seem to be all um, on board with the idea that this is a season about developing the young players in the locker room. Um, and it's about tinkering and putting different guys in different situations and seeing how they react and evaluating and ultimately – what it's really about is 
finding one, two, three, four players from this roster, excluding uh, Kevin Knox, who you can bring forward with you if you're the Knicks and you're thinking about putting together, you know, a, a nucleus of a, of a roster that you want to build around. Are there three or four players on this team that you could bring with you in that group or are there not? I think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about this Knicks season. I think by and large, the players understand that. Um, but, you know, as they keep losing, that has a that has a toll. And these guys are human beings. And it'll be inter- interesting to see if there's any fractures or fissures in that locker room as the losses continue to pile up as we expect them to. Yeah, and you know what? I'm, <laughs> I will say that I am guilty of this. I go on Twitter all the time and I'm like, look at this. This is culture. These guys are upbeat. These guys are for each other. I was saying how Dotson was off the bench last night clapping. That's all well and good to say after however many games you know they played, 18 games. Uh, let's check back and see how that is when they're, you know, whatever, 8 and 30 or, you know, 12 and and 40 or something. Um, Just the one follow-up that I had to that, you know, you mentioned Cantor. I think everybody knows, look, ideally he was a little peeved. As Fizz has admittedly been tinkering with the lineup, you know, a guy will get a start one night and then maybe a couple nights later he'll get a, a DNP CD like Dotson did last night. Similar question, but I guess maybe a little bit more more pointed. Do you get the sense that these guys are um, understanding that at least the first maybe couple months of the season are going to be for um, evaluatory purposes in kind of trying some things out? And like a guy like Dotson or a guy like Hazonia or Trey Burke, all guys who have gotten you know um, entire games where they didn't see the court, that they're kind of understanding of that and they're okay with it or – is it more the same like they're okay now, but we'll see how it is in a few months? I think publicly, if they're savvy, they'll tell us over, like throughout the season that they're okay with it. But I think a lot of times in these situations, their their players' honest take, honest opinion on this kind of dynamic where the, the minutes are kind of inconsistent, the roles are inconsistent, is, is very different uh, from what they say publicly. So I would imagine – that right now there's probably grumbling going on among the players who are kind of in and out of the rotation. And maybe if things spiral in a, in a bad way, in a way that we've seen Nick season spiral in the past, that will become public. But I, cause I think that's natural, especially when you're thinking about a team like this one with so many players who are on one year contracts, who are not only playing for this team for this season, but also for their professional future. I mean, that's, it's only human nature to worry yeah. about yeah. what you're going to get this summer. And if I'm it's not getting point. minutes, if I'm out of the rotation, it's going to bother me because it's affecting my money going forward. So right, I think right. that's going to be, that is going to be, and it probably is right now privately, uh, something, a frustration point for some of these guys. And I think that'll continue, but that's just the nature of the NBA, especially dealing with players in the situation that a lot of the Knicks are in. Well, and especially because we're sort of asking as as fans even of competing things. We want these guys to be competitive and leave everything they have on the floor, but then we want them to be cool with, you know, sit on the bench when you're told, right? So it's like either you have that competitive fire to play, right, or you don't. Um, so, you know, you almost want to see that a little bit, I think, because it, it shows that these guys, you know, really want it. Um, but I guess – kind of spiraling from that into um, 
a decision they have in a couple weeks uh, for Alonzo with the 45 days coming up. I was just interested on your take in terms of, and, and I'm sure at this point you'd just be you know, speculating, uh, otherwise you would have already reported it, but do you get a feel for what what you think they're leaning towards doing with in terms of creating an extra roster spot or how they might go about that, whether they maybe prefer to do that in a trade, whether they're going to explore all options right to the end, and then if they can't you know, do it in a trade, then obviously they got to make, um, you know, just wave someone. Do you have any sense on that? I would think that it's it's the one of the things you said, which was exploring all the options until the last second. I think basically that's what you saw with Joakim Noah, even though they didn't wait until the 11th hour to make that move. They waited pretty much uh, as long as they could until they, they realized nothing was going to change around the league that would have created an option for Joakim Noah to, to go somewhere else immediately. So I think there's no need for them to really rush with Alonzo, but I think there's a there's a uh, one there's a date out there that by which the Knicks I think have a little bit more flexibility uh, in terms of structuring the contract for Alonzo that I think is before his uh, 45 day date. So I think maybe that's a place where they start to talk more seriously about the contract and then obviously make the corresponding move. But I think obviously they're going to continue to talk about a Courtney Lee trade. And if that's not something you can get done, or if there's not another trade that you can do that brings you back, maybe a second round pick and not a player, then you have a tough decision to make because I don't think there's an obvious move here. When you talk about cutting a player, um, Earlier in the season, it, it seemed like the obvious move would have been Emmanuel Moutier. Uh, he's become a player to receive minutes from David Fisdale and, and play well at times. And then, you know, you talk about maybe Ron Baker is is an option, but you know, he's making all that money. And I get that it's, it's going to be off the books this summer regardless. But still, it's a lot of dead money. Um, so that's not ideal. So they would have a tough decision on their hands if they can't make that trade that nets them back. Uh, you know, a pick or, or opens them up a roster spot. And and Ron Baker is the best clapper on the team from the bench. So I think we, you know, they, they would miss his enthusiasm uh, from, you know, the position of the guy wearing the warm-ups. Um, you let's know, get... it's funny, like, you make it, make it light of it, but a lot of, like, Jeff Hornacek and David Fizda both oh, totally. kind of yeah. what he brings day in and day out to a team uh, on the practice court. And, and elsewhere is of high value. Um, so you do lose something there, even though the guy's not playing. I mean, fans might laugh at that, but I think a lot of stuff happens. I know a lot of stuff happens behind closed doors that we're not privy to that guys kind of bring to the table. And a lot of times we don't see that. And I think Ron Baker is a good example of that. And I, I think that's a great point. I'm, I'm happy you made it. Let's um, get two quick ones more, and then I know you got to go, and, and we got to go because uh, hey, we have families that want our attention. Um, July 2019. Uh, I know we've spoken before, and you have said to me that you believe they will get a guy. Um, is have you gotten any sense from the front office that they are hell bent on spending this money this summer, regardless of if it's on? Kevin Durant or Kawhi Leonard or, you know, uh, Kemba Walker or Tobias Harris or Chris Middleton? Or do you get the sense that there could potentially be um, some modicum of patience that if they don't feel like they get their guy, they might roll it over to roll it over to the next year? 
Right. So this is not directly from uh, top decision makers in the organization, but the sense that that sense that I had back back in July when uh, Steve Mills did his interview with Stephen A. Smith and basically said they were all in on this summer was exactly that. But uh, more recently, uh, you get the impression that yes, they're gonna they're going to make a push for a player like Kevin Durant, a player that you know they feel can really push things forward. But if that doesn't happen and that person doesn't end up coming to New York, they're not going to spend just to spend um, like we saw with uh, Amari and, and Raymond Felton that summer. They're, I don't think they're going to feel compelled to spend the money just because it's there. Um, but well, two things kind of off of that briefly. One, if they are to land a Kevin Durant type, you know, the, the idea that the Knicks are in development mode goes out the window. Oh, yes. That, point, <laughs> yep. it's, yep. It's, that was going to actually be my question to you. Yep. Yeah. So it's win now time. And that's that brings uh, an interesting set of decisions for the front office. First of all, you know, bringing in veteran types who can who can uh, fill in the gaps around a Durant and a Porzingis and whoever else. Uh, but then how do you view a guy like Frank Nilakina who we don't know what he is going to be yet we know what we've seen thus far we know it's been inconsistent not enough on offense we know we've seen good things on defense but can you be patient enough to allow him to continue to develop into a player that can really fit what you want to do or do you see him as a way to get a player who can give you consistent points on offense and can do some things on defense and fits your timeline better. So it just creates, it would create a different set of decisions for this front office in an interesting way. But if they strike out this summer, big picture sense, that seems all, all well and good because you're continuing to do the right things, building through the draft young players. I just wonder from the standpoint of Chris Porzingis, you know, he, because there was no extension, they essentially had an extra $10 million this summer. Um, and since I believe that it's kind of, they're kind of in wait-and-see mode, just my read on things, if they don't bring in somebody, how does that sit with him in terms of committing to New York long-term? Um, so that's just something to think about uh, when we talk about this summer and how things may or may not play out. Right, right. Yeah, and it's funny. I was just going to ask you, I think I don't think a lot of fans truly realize, like, everyone's excited about the young kids, and then they're excited, like, oh, well, we just add Durant to these young kids, and we're good to go. I think you're exactly uh -huh. right. That's not you know, it. If, yeah. if you add ahead, Durant, sorry. then, no, no, yeah, if you add Durant, then the excitement of the young kids is you're hoping you can trade them for other veterans, right? Right, right. <laughs> you're on the clock. Them. Right, you're, and, but, and then if you don't, the right, but then if you don't get someone like Durant, I think the other side of it is these guys. You know, Knox is 19 years old. If everyone's excited about a 2019 lottery pick, so here's another guy who's going to be 18 or 19. Your clock on those guys is three to four years down the road before they're good. I think with KP because financially. I mean, for him to leave the Knicks, right? Like when you say he might, you know, if he wouldn't want to commit long term, I assume you're saying like, okay, he's a restricted free agent next year. Maybe he signs a shorter term deal to bridge him to when he becomes like a seven to nine year uh, free agent. Because, you know, for him to pass up the money the Knicks would be offering to become 
an unrestricted free agent or to put himself in a position that he's just on like a qualifying offer to force a trade, you know, he would be he would be giving up a lot, a lot of money. But if he he might say, I agree, you know, I'm not gonna sign the full max for for the five years. I might do a two plus one or something like that. Um so I guess the last question I have is like, is that what you just because a couple of times you've alluded to that? Mm-hmm. Is that sort of what your thinking is on that? That like him not committing long term or any signs we see of tension through the year? And I think it gets alluded to a lot of, well, you know, does that mean KP's unhappy? Is it about that? Just not wanting to maybe be here for that five year max sign this summer, but assuming he's definitely going to sign you know, a, a two plus one or something, and then at worst he forces a trade? Or do you think there's a possibility he would literally just say, no, I'm going to play on my qualifying offer next year and just try to leave? I think it would be the trade route, and I don't, like, I don't know if, if, you, if, you do, if you go that route. Do you sign a short-term deal and then force a trade? Or do you, do you say, listen, it's not going to happen here to Nick management. You guys have to figure something out. And then the best course of action for the Knicks at that point is to find a deal that works best for them. And then Porzingis's contract is signed with another team, which is obviously would be less than what he could sign with the Knicks. Um, it's, I think that whatever happens in that scenario, a trade would be the end result. Um, obviously the Knicks wouldn't let him go for nothing. Uh, so I guess it's just a matter of, do you sign the contract and then, force the trade or do you go to your other the other team get traded first and then sign with them i'm not sure that the the route that that would take place but i think that's how if you get to that point and listen we're talking about um hypotheticals here we're not saying this is going <laughs> right, to happen. Right, right. i don't think it's likely to happen but i think if you got to that point it would be the knicks trading porzingis getting pieces back and then porzingis uh signing with that second team well, we we don't want to give Knicks fans any heart attacks before Thanksgiving, uh, so we should. <laughs> so I think this is a good place to end end the pod. Um, I just want to say really quick before I let you go, Ian, and I, I never thought I'd have a chance to say this because I never thought I, I'd have this platform. But um, you know, about a year and a half ago, I, I discovered that me and me and Ian had a mutual friend, and this is back when I, you know, I think I had like fifty Twitter followers, and I reached out, and I'm like, you know, he's probably not going to have time for me because uh, I didn't know, know him personally and I just kind of wanted to shoot the shit and, and get his opinion on some things and uh, to everyone listening out there I got to say Ian Begley has uh, spent time on the phone with me text messages reading my stuff he is um, as good a dude as you will find out there in the media world and um, I just want to you know because I know fans can give you a hard time when you tell them stuff about their team they don't want to hear uh, but it's... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a pain in the ass in itself. And <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just want to say to everyone listening that you are um, the best dude uh, that is out there on the Knicks beat. I mean, I don't know the rest of them personally, but I, I feel comfortable uh, making that, that statement. So I just want to thank you, and, and thank you for coming on the podcast, of course, most of all. I appreciate that, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot for the, the kind words. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, the next time that anybody starts killing me online, I'm just going to tweet a link to this podcast and say, hey, <laughs> skip to the end. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. exactly. Uh, I think uh, but thank you, guys. Thank you. You know what we didn't get into, which is what I want to get into a little bit, which what, we don't have time, maybe next time. But the the Frank Nilakina thing, like, 
people either love him or hate him. I know you guys are on board with Frank, but it's just so fascinating to me. I wish we could fast forward like four or five years yeah, right now and just yeah. see who's right because people are so passionate on both sides of this thing. People, you got people saying that he's a bust, he's garbage. You have like you guys see the light and think he's going to be still a good player. Maybe he ends up somewhere in the middle. It's just one of those fascinating things just to he- hear the rhetoric on both sides since he got drafted or maybe since early last season. And I just want to know who's right because people are so adamant on both sides. of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering. Well, I'll say this. I don't think Nick's film school exists the same way it does without that passion fans have about Frank because really – a lot of like the first videos I was putting out was about his defense and I couldn't believe like how many, I mean, some of this stuff that I'm pointing, pointing out are, you know, it's pretty basic stuff. Now, again, you know, people who follow me know, I, I think highly of Frank on defense and there are exceptional stuff he's doing, but that th- he can literally just do the most basic of things and it will get engagement. And like he said, either way. So it's, I agree. I want to see which way it turns out, but also for a team that obviously isn't winning a lot of games and doesn't have, you know, even KP, their one superstar playing, I guess we're all kind of lucky in terms of uh, content creating people that, you know, he helps us draw views. And I hear a little one in the background there. I I know. Sorry about that. I know what that means. (laughs) (laughs) She's leading me into the living room. So that's probably my son to go. It is important time for for you to go. But uh, no, that's a great point on on Frank's. I'm glad you made it. But yeah, important time to go. Enjoy the holiday. We appreciate it. All right, gentlemen, you too. Enjoy the time with your families. Take care. Ian, it was great having you. Thanks again. Uh, JB, thank you for your time. Um, anything you want to uh, plug before we before we get going? No, I think I, I think we're good. So we'll, we'll talk to everyone soon. I Well, I want to plug something before we go. Make sure you check out the new Knicks Film School logo, um, which we debuted today uh, on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. And everybody out there listening, thank you. Have a great holiday. I want to wish uh, Ian's family a good holiday, JB's family a great holiday. And um, Ian, give a a kiss and a hug to your little one there from all of Nick's fandom. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. All right, take care. We'll talk to you soon. Be well, everybody. Giddy up.